Hi, everyone. Hi there. Who could believe that it is still February? And we're going to hit 90 degrees or more today. And it's actually hot out there. Yes, it is. Right? I got out and walked this morning. It was actually hot in the sun. I felt, felt like it was a late spring day. So, wow. 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 But, you know, I'm just hoping it's not a precursor of anything coming this summer. And I guess Wednesday it's going to be... 50? In the low 50s or something, <laughs> right? Crazy. So, yeah. But here I am. You can't see it. What you're glad of, I, I suspect. He's in shorts. I'm in shorts. Yeah, I got shorts on, short sleeve shirt. All good. I got John Wesley behind me. Do you see him there in the bobblehead? Let me turn around here, Patty, and grab him. Yeah. Yes. Here's John Wesley. Ready to make sure that we kind of stay on track. Uh, Patty mentioned a few weeks ago in my Sunday class that it was... National Bobblehead Day, and um, so then Chris Freeze brought me this bobblehead. Yes, right? actually bought this bobblehead. Yes, for and he bobbles and everything. Yes, yep. he does. So he, cool. he, he keeps on I me. Mean, I'm going to put him right up here right now. So. And for those of you who wonder if, if I have any John Wesleys looking over my shoulder, hold on. I'll be right back. <laughs> you can't see him, but actually, yes, this is... This is quite the thing, actually. This okay. is showing. This is show and tell day today. This, is. this was another gift to Scott a few years ago, and it has quite a story behind it. The gentleman who gave this to Scott actually comes to the Tuesday. Class. Joe Armstrong. Joe Armstrong. And this came from a, an anniversary of Wesley's death in the late 19th century. Yes. That, and this is original. So this is from the late 19th century. Very, very old. And he said he found it in a London shop and thought of me. And yes, so there we go. Cool. So he, he too keeps an eye on us. Yes, yes. He's right <laughs> over my shoulder just in case yeah, I misbehave. So we're, so we're pretty well covered, aren't we, honey? <laughs> we are. We are pretty well covered. <laughs> John Wesley can be assured that we, we are gonna, we are gonna be Wesleyan. And our approach to things, which is a very sound way. You could just as easily, I think, say Arminian, but it's a big emphasis on, uh, uh, you know, yes. on God's love. Yes. Free will, God's grace, a lot of that. Yes. So anyway, very good. So here I've accidentally brightened us up too wow. much here. <laughs> We're pretty bright there, but I must have actually bumped it. I had a, I had a sway dark a moment ago. But anyway... Enough of this. Should we go on to numbers, you think? Yeah, we should. Should we? We should. What would you like to say? Oh, I always have more to say, so I'll be, <laughs> I'll be, good. I'll be good. Okay, tell us one more thing. Um, okay, one more thing. Yesterday, we got to go to an amazing event yesterday afternoon in the New Hesley Chapel because yes. we went to see our own Jennifer used to be Jennifer Arnold, as many of us knew her, now Jennifer Powell for many years. We got to see her official ordination. And even though she has been, gosh, she's, it just it was hard to believe. And Arthur kept saying that, that, you know, that she's been doing these things for years. Because God had already ordained her. Ordained. We, we were just acknowledging the accomplished We were just acknowledging fact. it. And um, it was really Really, really lovely it was. and touching. It was a lovely, it really, lovely service. Really was. Wonderful time. Yes, and uh, Lawrence will be coming up in May, and um, May eighteenth, and that's something you won't want to miss. 
Yes, That's it'll be in the big sanctuary. It will be. It will so. be. Okay. Well, okay. shall I now? now shall I go. pray? Yes. Okay. Let's pray. Gracious Lord, we are grateful to be here today on this beautiful Monday, and we just pray that your uh, Holy Spirit, who called us here, will will fill us with energy and enthusiasm and understanding as we come to some very very challenging passages. These are the ones that drive Christians crazy, um, but but help us to see in them what we should and um, not see in them more than we should. All this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All righty. All right. You're going to head over? Side. Yep. Okay. You head over. All's good here. I'm going to center the camp. Wow. Center the camera. Um, take a sip of my coffee. Yeah. Mid-afternoon coffee. Mm. <laughs> my my K-cup. You know what kind of K-cups I use? You don't know what kind of K-cups I use. I use McDonald's K-cups. McDonald, McDonald's medium roast K-cups. Because for my money, McDonald's has a very good cup of coffee. If you just walk in and buy a cup of coffee, McDonald's is a good, a good solid cup of coffee. Yes. So... We've had a number of people who have been very kind and have sent Scott little boxes of other coffees from our classes over the years, and I do think he appreciated all of them. I don't think you've ever had a bad cup of coffee. Oh, it's hard to find a bad cup of coffee, <laughs> but but <laughs> McDonald's is a good, very reasonably priced, everyday sort of K-cup coffee. There we go. Enough for that. Okay. Okay, so we are in Numbers 31. We're starting there. And it is really tied with chapter 25. So you can think of chapter 25 and 31 together, and it's really like 31 and 32 at least. Um, and it is about, it's about war, and it's about vengeance, and it's about violence. Chapter 25, if you remember, was about the people being seduced by the Moabite gods and the Midianite women. And um, the most striking part of chapter 25 is when this one Israelite man throws a uh, spear through the Midianite woman and the Israelite man that's been consorting with her. And... Um, it's a dramatic moment, and it. We saw that it spoke to you. You always have to look. It, it's it's easy to get lost in the narrative. You have to look for the, for the theology here. What this theology here? The theology is that these people, the Israelites, are the ones chosen by God, the ones to whom God will work, to rescue all of humankind. So their mission, the mission that God has them on, and the people themselves, they are crucial. They are critical. They are, they are what? They are the, they're the cure for cancer. And so, so much of the Old Testament is about trying to keep these people faithful to God and not have them becoming a faithless bunch of 
pagans chasing after all kinds of pagan gods and goddesses. And that really is just a such a driving part of the Old Testament. And as we've talked many times, the sad thing is that they don't succeed. They fail. And it creates what seems to be an insurmountable problem for God, but a problem that God will will fix through one faithful Jew who will stay utterly faithful to God in spite of all things, and that Jew's name is Jesus. Okay? So in 31, as in 25, and now we have 31, 31 is going to look back and sort of build on 25 with uh, 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 particularly the Midianites, but uh, are in focus. And it's going to bring us into issues of war because there's a lot of war and there's a lot of violence in the book of Numbers. There is in these Old Testament writings in general. And why is that? because we are a warlike people we humans are and we are we are quick and every time we think we are past it um, or it's a relic of the past we are slapped in the face with it I can remember a little more than two years ago you know person on the street interviews in Ukraine with people who said well Putin's not going to do anything this is the 21st century you know, that, that kind of warfare, just blatant invading your neighbor with tanks and missiles and artillery, that, that's a thing of the past. And weren't they in for a shock? Yes. When sure enough, he did exactly that. And it, it's that ever-present reminder that we are never past this. And um, the questions it raises are important now. They were important then. Um, and when I was doing some, some background and reading on this, this portion of numbers, I um, came across a commentator, a scholar, who, who kind of helped me just think for a moment about the way war is depicted in the book of Numbers. Okay, because it's not all the same. That's the deal. It's not all the same. So you can't just go into even this one book. Just take one book of the Bible. Say, go to that book of the Bible, and you'll find out what God wants to say to us about war. Okay, so here we go. Now, um, in one instance, um, in uh, the book of Numbers, Killing in war is an act of sacrifice to God and um, requiring the extermination of an entire population. It's called the harem. It's called the ban. It is, it is this practice not restricted to the Israelites where they would be told by God all living things. Anything by which you might profit from this war, you cannot keep. Or it must be sacrificed to God, one of the two. But you're not gonna you're not gonna profit from this. Okay, that that's the that's the key part that always struck me about this the harem the ban that if they go to war, 
um, they can't they can't reap any benefits from it because war is it's really incompatible right with with how God created us so even in the Old Testament there is no blanket endorsement of war it's only dealing with the realities that people do go to war for all sorts of purposes okay the second one and I'm quoting from, from this fellow now, the priestly, pre-priestly writers, now that's a funny thing, is it? Pre-priestly writers. All he's referring to is that there are threads, pieces of the Old Testament which are woven together and have certain perspectives. For example, there are some parts of Numbers which bear the perspective of the priests. And you can kind of tell that because they're very much taken up with sacrifices and purity and the rest. And there are other pieces that are not. There's other pieces that are that seem even quite older than that in terms of the customs and the things that are focused on. So the story we're coming to, to today is clearly priestly in nature. And you'll see that because it's going to focus on, on the impurity created by the Israelites going to war so the he, still in number two the pre-priestly writers envision war as divine judgment against nations that worship false gods you can read through the old testament you can find that um but the priests bring a little different view the priestly writers interpret war as a necessary evil War maintains purity in a polluted world. Um, the people are, are a community. The war is sanctioned by God. And the priests participate in the war. And they even take certain holy objects into battle with them. Um, but never is Yahweh depicted as actually participating in the war participating in the killing but the focus is on what the violence does and how it makes um, even the Israelites impure in a way that it has to be dealt with and that is what we're going to see here in in this in this telling of the war against the Midianites. And it's just one it's just one war among many, as I've said. We're only through what are we through? Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers. So there's a whole lot of time that lies ahead and a whole lot of war that's gonna be made. Uh, remember David and the Philistines and the rest of it, sure. But this is right now in Numbers thirty one, the focus is on the Midianites and it ties to chapter twenty five. Okay, and I brought a map just to remind you about the geography here. Let's see. There we go. So this is sort of their trail, the Israelites' trail up the eastern side of really what is a, uh, a rift between two tectonic plates leading from um, the Gulf of Aqaba, we call it today, all the way up to the, to the Dead Sea. And you can see Midian is in the pink at the bottom, the land of Moab. Um, 
these are all from the perspective of the Israelites they are all pagan tribes with gods and goddesses galore who always are tempting for the Israelites to worship so before I go on you got anything anybody got anything on this beautiful day, you don't think we'd be coming here talking about war, huh? Yeah, fun. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, it's, there we go. You know, the Bible's pretty real about things, and man, do we humans love to make war. We, we say we don't, but given the amount of it that goes on, right. it's hard to say we don't. Anyway, chapter 31, verse 1. So let's try to keep our eyes on sort of the what the pre, just imagine what the priests would want us to get from the way this is written okay so Yahweh said to Moses take vengeance on the Midianites for the Israelites right because the Midianites have been intermarrying and foisting themselves upon the Israelites and God's gonna 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 keep them separate take vengeance on the Midianites for the Israelites now the whole idea about vengeance in the Bible is even, there's not just one place you could go. In fact, you could trace vengeance from the beginning all the way through the Bible. Beginning with, you know, you slap me, I killed you and burned down your village, basically, Genesis 4. To Moses, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. The Psalms, vengeance is mine, saith the Lord, all the way forward to Jesus. When he's asked, how many times should I forgive my brother? Jesus says 70 times 7. That's unlimited forgiveness. So, and vengeance has no place in that. Vengeance, vengeance is something we, we Christians are called to set aside. We are not called to take revenge on people. It is not what God wants from us. It's not the way of peace. It's not even wise. A, a Chinese proverb goes something like this. He who undertakes a journey of revenge should dig two graves. I love that. Right? So, but God says to Moses, we're way back in the book of Numbers. Take vengeance on the Midianites for the Israelites. After that, you, Moses, will be gathered to your people. That means we're getting pretty close to Moses' time when he will, uh, he will go to God. Verse 3. So Moses said to the people, Arm some of your men to go to war against the Midianites, so that they may carry out Yahweh's vengeance on them. Send into battle a thousand men from each of the tribes of Israel. So, twelve thousand men armed for battle, a thousand from each tribe were supplied from the clans of Israel. Which tribe did not supply a thousand men? Levites. You got it, Patty. Remember, they, they're, they, they weren't counted in the same way in the military census. Verse 6. Moses sent them into battle, a thousand from each tribe, along with Phinehas, son of Eleazar the priest. Aha. You see, 
this is a, this is from the thread of quote priestly writings. It's a perspective of the priests that we're going to get here. I, I do have a question. Yeah, go ahead, ask because it, Patty. What we just said about you know that the the priests did not have to you know put people into battle. So I am curious why this says send into battle a thousand men from each of the tribes. Yeah. So twelve thousand men. Yes. A thousand from each tribe. Where, yes. where is that other thousand? If it's not coming from the Levites, what is? Where because is that the, other the, the tribes are made up of Joseph's sons, Manasseh and Ephraim. Okay. Joseph had two sons, so in essence, one of those sons. Take your pick. It stands in for Joseph, and the other one ends up standing in for, um, the for the Levites. That's how you start with twelve, including yes. Levi. Yes. Joseph will pull yes. out because he doesn't get, he's not going to get land. That's the focus is who's going to get land. And then the Levi's aren't. And you're thinking to yourself, well, gosh, now I'm down to 10. How do I get back up to 12? Right. Because you have Joseph's two sons by his Egyptian bride. Two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim. Mm -hmm. And those names are off. Ephraim is a common name to be used to stand in for the name of Israel. So they are bona fide tribes. They will get bona fide land and the whole thing, Manasseh and Ephraim. So good question, Patty, because it's one that I think a lot of folks get confused about. Yep. So 12,000 men, they're taking a priest with them, Phineas, son of Eleazar, um, and who took with him what? Articles from the sanctuary. The, these like holy objects, right? And and trumpets for signaling. So so the the priests are involved. Eleazar is standing in for the priests. The priests are involved in this. So, verse 7, they fought against Midian as Yahweh commanded Moses and killed every man. Now, we're going to get into numbers and things again and don't get don't get lost in that. There's there's hyperbole here. There's exaggeration here. There's there's they killed every man. The victory is complete. The victory is complete. And among their victims were Evi, Rechem, Zur, Hur, and Ariba, the five kings of Midian. So even the kings of Midian have been killed in this fighting. They also killed, look, Balaam. Balaam of the talking donkey. Mm -hmm. Son of Beor with the sword. The Israelites captured the Midianite women and children and took all the Midianite herds, flocks, and goods as plunder. Plunder. This is the way of war. I mean, this was the way of war forever, nearly. You know, that, the, that to the victors go the spoils. You've heard that that phrase sure. before, sure. I mean, it was it's part of how you got men to fight. You got men to fight because if they won, they got they could get rich off off the plunder that they could bring bring back from battle. So here you have women, children, herds, flocks, stuff, <laughs> right? Yes. Verse ten, they burned all the towns where the Midianites had settled as well as all their camps. 
They took all of the plunder and the spoils, including the people and animals, and brought the captives, spoils and plunder, to Moses and Eleazar the priest, and to the Israelite assembly at their camp on the plains of Moab by the Jordan across from Jericho. So that is right up at the top of that red line. It's not called Shittim right now, but that's what it is, because that's basically across from Jericho. Okay? Verse 13. Moses, Eleazar the priest, the father of Phinehas, who went into battle, and all the leaders of the community went to meet them outside the camp. Moses was angry with the officers of the army, the commanders of thousands, the commanders of hundreds, who returned from the battle. And here's what he asked them. Have you allowed all the women to live? He asked them. They were the ones who followed Balaam's advice and enticed the Israelites to be unfaithful to Yahweh in the Peor incident so that a plague struck Yahweh's people. Now kill all the boys, should be the young men, and kill every woman who has slept with a man, but save for yourselves every girl who has never slept with a man. Wow. You know, this is where <laughs> every time I come to a passage like this, I just have to say, oh, bless me, Jesus. You know, it's um, Jesus keeps me grounded and oriented to, to who God really is and, and what God really desires from us and helps me understand that this is all coming from I mean, this is like 3,500 years ago. It's an, it's, this is the ancient, ancient Near East. And wow, there are in the book of Deuteronomy restrictions about how you, um, an Israelite man could marry a woman who had been captured in battle, okay? But generally speaking, you know, foreign women were seen as dangerous because they would bring their pagan gods and goddesses inside the community. That's the thing. It's, it's all about trying to keep the community um, uh, pure, faithful to God, not chasing after other gods, which would be in violation of course, of, of one of the Ten Commandments. You know, have no other gods before me. Verse 19. Anyone who has killed someone or touched someone who was killed must stay outside the camp seven days. Because why? They just fought for the Israelites. Why? Because the violence has made them impure. The war, the violence itself is unholy. The death results from it is unholy. On the third and seventh days, you must purify yourselves and your captives. Purify every garment as well, anything made of leather, goat hair, or wood. Then Eleazar the priest said to the soldiers who had gone into battle, This is what is required by the law that Yahweh gave Moses. Gold, silver, bronze, iron, 
tin, lead, and anything else that can withstand fire must be put through the fire and then it will be clean. Even the plunder is unclean. Why is it unclean? Because it's the fruits of war and violence and killing. You know, the, the Old Testament, I mean, you wish it was less ambiguous than it is about, okay, so there's a commandment about thou shalt not commit murder. Some will translate it. Terence Fredheim, one of my guides, will say, we need to be careful. Maybe we should make sure that we still say, thou shalt not kill because of the value of human life. He's not ready to give up and just, Terence Fredheim, he's dead now, but he wasn't ready to give up and say, well, no, it's just murder. That it's all killing, all killing is violent and, and brings an end to life. This is not getting into issues of just war and things like I think we talked about for a few minutes last week. That's not what we're talking about here. It's, it's, it's about the recognition of how this world should be, what God's hope for this world was when he created it and created man and woman, gave them a beautiful place to live and work before all that was torn asunder by rebellion. And the sort of world that God will recreate in the new heavens and the new earth when Jesus returns. And killing and violence um, don't have a place in that. Killing and violence are a reflection of our brokenness, of our sinfulness, right? It doesn't mean every act of killing is evil, but it, 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 like we talked about last week, but it does all, it does all reflect even a justified killing by a soldier on a battle, if battlefield, it reflects the brokenness of this world. Sure it does. Sure it does. And nobody, least of all, the, the soldier on the battlefield wants it to be that way. So, so they're going to take all the stuff they brought back. They're going to purify it all. Um, they're going to look at verse 23. It must also be purified with the water of cleansing. All this stuff they brought back, whatever cannot withstand fire, must be put through that water. So obviously, if you've brought some plunder back, that you can't you can't put through a fire then all you can do is put it through the water but if it if it can withstand the fire you put it through the fire and then you put it through the water on the seventh day wash your clothes even that and you will be clean then you may come into the camp it's the perspective of the priests that war is war is we call it a holy war and I guess it's called a holy war because the way it's written, it's, you know, God instigates it. But it's pretty clear really quick that the war itself is not holy and God doesn't directly participate in it and the people are rendered impure by it. 
So there should be a few clues in there that there is nothing here to be glorified. These fighters returning aren't given a parade and marched through town and glorified. Maybe they should be. I don't know. But they're not because war and killing is impure and it's not God's hope and wish for us. So, okay. Thoughts, Patty? Anybody? Anything out there? This would be good to do if we were all in the same room because I imagine... There would be a few thoughts or questions. Well, you know, it, it, the, the law, the um, the direction given to Moses is it starts out the very first verse is the Lord said to Moses, "Take vengeance on the Midianites." Yes, it sure does. Sure does. So it 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 really just goes all the way back, you know, to God Himself. Um. Yeah. You, you know, you do kind of wrestle with that, like how you, when you're following God's explicit instructions, you still come out of this as not clean, not holy, not worthy to be even allowed back in the camp. Because he, let's let's think about it this way: it might be. Let's just take take it from the from from God's perspective. This is necessary. Because these the these pagan tribes have already shown themselves to be a great danger to the Israelites and their faithfulness. And so it has to be dealt with. So it's necessary. But the fact that it's necessary doesn't make it we change the even though it's necessary, it is still a reflection of a broken world. Yes. That's the thing. You know, it's still a reflection of the, of a broken world, a world in which things are not right. So, I don't know. You know, there's there's so many questions. These passages, you know, t are just very difficult for modern day Christians, uh, and probably non Christians, but particularly Christians, because we wonder well. You know, where's Jesus in this, right? And, and not enough people are told that the Bible is this progressive revelation of who God is from not knowing God too well, God revealing himself somewhat, but, but not a lot, um, having to work with a violent, ancient, ancient, ancient people in a, in a violent world, coming forward to Jesus and the revelation of who God is progressing over time until finally Jesus will say, well, Peter, here to forgive your brother 70 times 7. That's a long That's a long way from an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, which is part of the law of Moses. So, I wish you kind of wish, as a teacher, I wish it was all nice and neat and a bow and it'd be super easy, but... It's just not. So let's look at, divide, at dividing the spoils. Verse 25. Yahweh said to Moses, You and Eleazar the priests and the family head of the community are to count all the people and animals that were captured. Divide the spoils equally between the soldiers who took part in the battle and the rest of the community. 
So all of that is something because this is not a depiction of war as the harem, H-E-R-E-M, not a harem like, you know, a lot of wives and stuff. A harem, a, a, harem, H-E-R-E-M, the band where no spoils can be kept. Nobody's going to profit in any way. Here, they're going to keep the spoils. They're just going to be divided up. From verse 28, from the soldiers who fought in the battle set apart as tribute for Yahweh, one out of every 500, whether people, cattle, donkeys, or sheep. Take this tribute from their half share and give it to Eleazar the priest as Yahweh's part. From the Israelites' half, select one out of every 50, whether people, cattle, donkeys, sheep, or other animals. Give them to the Levites who are responsible for the care of Yahweh's tabernacle. The difference between the 50 and the 500 is because there's a lot more Levites than there are priests. So Moses and Eleazar the priest did as Yahweh commanded Moses. And the plunder remaining from the spoils that the soldiers took was and of course, these are impossible numbers, but we're not going to worry about that, are we? 675,000 sheep, 72,000 cattle, 61,000 donkeys, 32,000 women who had never slept with a man. In other words, virgins. This goes back to a time when women were largely seen as property. Okay, so let me give you an illustration. If we went to Exodus 20, and look at the Ten Commandments that are there, you would come down to the tenth one, which is thou shalt not covet. Your neighbor's donkey, your neighbor's goat, your neighbor's house, and in that list you would find your neighbor's wife. She's just listed with all the property that you know your neighbor has that you're not supposed to covet. If you go forward to the book of Deuteronomy, which was came together in its final form much, much later, hundreds of years later, and you look at the Ten Commandments being restated, are our wives listed in that list of property? No, they're not. And it just shows this, this progression in sort of the, the moral sensibilities of the people in their life with God moving forward over time right um same in the in these books do men have multiple wives there's what numbers and the others books around them they have multiple wives yes when you come to jesus's day do husbands have multiple wives no the practice has died away as the people of god have moved forward so, Scott. Yeah. Um, right before you started this little neck, the little section we're on now, Nancy Pratt did pose a question: Does today's Israeli military have special purification rites? I don't know the answer to that. I would guess that would vary from person to person. We know somebody we could ask to ask a friend. Okay. Yes. You know. Okay, Patty. Yeah. We'll do that. Well, the interesting thing about what's happening in Israel right now is that the ultra-Orthodox, who have always been exempted from military service, that 
there is growing resent. There's always been some resentment, but there is growing resentment now because the ultra-Orthodox are growing in numbers so much in Israel, and yet they are exempt from military service. They, they don't have to work. They are supported by the state. And all of that is coming under scrutiny like it had not before. So I'm guess just just based on what I know about modern day Israel, I'm guessing that purification rites are something that that individual people may do, but a lot of Israel is a pretty secular place. Yes. A lot of Israel is a pretty secular place, actually. So I don't know. Well we'll find out. We'll 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 put we'll put our contact on that. Okay, good thought, Nancy. Thanks. 36, the half shift. You know, I can I just say one other thing? You know, we're getting pretty close to finishing this up, and we're going to go to 2 Corinthians. Gosh, it's going to be get good to get back to talking about Jesus every Monday. <laughs> really I have to say. But, you know, this is when Paul writes in 2 Timothy that all scriptures God breathed, you know what? That included the book of Numbers, right? So we cheat ourselves if we skip it. Um, but when there are portions of it that make you sympathetic to Marcion, Marcion was the Christian in the second century who said, look, you know, I've read the Old Testament, I've read the New, I don't see your Jesus in the Old Testament, we just need to get rid of it. But that was rejected by the Christian community at large because... Without the Old Testament, you can't understand Jesus. He is the fulfillment of the law and the prophets, as he puts it. So anyway, but that's still a few weeks ahead. The half, Verse 36 here in chapter 31. Now the half share of those who fought in the battle was 337,000 sheep, 36,000 cattle, 30,500 donkeys, and look, the amount of tribute to the Lord is specified numerically. 16,000 people of whom the tribute for the Lord was 32. Moses gave the tribute to Eleazar the priest as Yahweh's part, as Yahweh commanded Moses, and the half belonging to the Israelites, which Moses set apart from that of the fighting men. The community's half was 30,000 sheep and so on. Verse 47, from the Israelites' half, Moses selected one out of every 50 people and animals as Yahweh commanded him and gave them to the Levites who were responsible for the care of Yahweh's tabernacle. So then the officers come forward and they say to Moses in verse 39, your servants have counted the soldiers under our command and not one is missing. Right? Like that's, a, that's, that's, that, I'm sorry, that's impossible, but that's okay. So we have brought as an offering to Yahweh the gold articles each of us has acquired, armlets, bracelets, signet rings, earrings and necklaces to make atonement for ourselves before Yahweh. And what are they making atonement for? Why must they make atonement? Remember, atonement is to put the people or the person at one with God. That at one minute. 
a nice simple memory thing that's helpful to me. So why are they having to make atonement? Is because the they killing? participated yes. in the violence yes. and the killing, even though it is instigated by God 31 1. I think there's I think there's something important there to notice and to remember. So, verse 51. Moses and Eleazar the priests accepted from them the gold, all the crafted articles, all the gold from the commanders of thousands, the commanders of hundreds, that Moses and Eleazar presented as a gift to Yahweh weighed 16,750 shekels. Each soldier had taken plunder for himself. Moses and Eleazar the priest accepted the gold from the commanders of thousands, the commanders of hundreds, and brought into the tent of meeting as a memorial for the Israelites before Yahweh. Wow. So all of this stuff is being divvied up. All of it has had to have been rendered clean, right? All of it spent time outside the camp. All of the plunder was, was either put through the fire and then washed, or if it couldn't be put through a fire, washed alone. Even the soldiers had to go through a period of cleansing. Their clothing had to go through a period of cleansing. This is just not, this is not just to get rid of the dirt. It is because the violence and killing has rendered them impure. Okay? So, anybody got anything before we go on? Now, chapter 32 is still going to be of a piece with 31 and really 33 as, as the tribes are of Israelites are confronting other tribes. So, the Reubenites and the Gadites. So, these are the tribe of Reuben and the tribe of Gad, who were two of the original twelve sons of Jacob. The Reubenites and the Gadites, who had very large herds and flocks, saw that the lands of Jazer and Gilead were suitable for livestock. Now these are lands on the eastern side of the Jordan River. Okay? On the eastern side. Kind of like where that red line is. So if you... Um, you remember the hymn, There's a Bomb in Gilead? Gilead is a land there on the eastern side of the um, Jordan River. So, the Reubenites and Gadites, they came to Moses and Eleazar the priest and to the leaders of the community and said, Ataroth, Dibon, Jazar, Nimrah, Heshbon, Elielah, Sebam, Nebo, and Beon, the land the Lord subdued before the people of Israel are suitable for livestock, and your servants have livestock. If we have found favor in your eyes, they said, let this land be given to your servants as our possession. Do not make us cross the Jordan. So already these the names I read, those are other peoples, tribes who had been, think just think tribes, of various sizes who had been subdued and 
the descendants of Reuben and the descendants of Gad now want to get that land as their land on the eastern side of the Jordan River. Often I think we think of the promised land in Israel as only on the western side, but no, there are Israelites, Israelites who settle on the eastern side of the Jordan River. So Moses said to the Gadites and Reubenites, should you fellow Israelites go to war while you sit here? Why do you discourage the Israelites from crossing over into the land Yahweh has given them? This is what your fathers did when I sent them from Kadesh Barnea to look over the land. After they went up to the valley of Eshcol and viewed the land, they discouraged the Israelites from entering the land Yahweh had given them. So obviously Moses is what? He's fearful that what's happening is they're all going to chicken out again. This is, this is like the forerunner. These two tribes, he fears that these two tribes are saying, well, you know, ah, we'll be good right here. We don't really need to cross the Jordan. We'll be fine on the eastern side of the Jordan River. We don't need to cross over it into the land of Canaan. Just like happened 40 years before. That's Moses' fear. And, and Moses, in these verses, is recounting that story. So verse 10, Yahweh's anger, anger was aroused that day, and he swore this oath. Looking back 40 years before, because they have not followed me wholeheartedly, not one of those who were 20 years old or more when the, they came up out of Egypt will see the land I promised on oath to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Not one except Jacob, son of Jephunneh the Kenizzite, and Joshua, son of Nun, for they followed Yahweh wholeheartedly. The Lord's anger burned against Israel, and he made them wander in the wilderness forty years, until the whole generation of those who had done evil in his sight was gone. And here you are, a brood of sinners. Wow. A brood of sinners standing in the place of your fathers and making Yahweh even more angry with Israel. If you turn away from following him, he will again leave all this people in the wilderness and you will be the cause of their destruction. This is a very direct confrontational meeting, isn't it? A lot of people would like to be like a fly on the wall at this meeting. <laughs> then they came up to him. These are the Reubenites and the Gadites. We would like to build pens here for our livestock and cities for our women and children, but we will arm ourselves for battle and we'll go ahead of the Israelites until we have brought them to their place, a meaning we will cross over and we will fight. See, because when they're, they're not far from entering the Promised Land, when they cross the Jordan River to enter the Promised Land, there are people there. It's not unpopulated. They're going to spend 150 years conquering portions of it and living side by side with pagan tribes in this, in this land. There's nothing clean and neat with neat little boundaries and all that kind of stuff about it. And the Reubenites and Gadites say, we're not chickening out, but we would like to leave our women here, build pens, build some villages, but we will fight. We will do that. 
we will, verse 17 at the end, we will go ahead of the Israelites. We'll go first until we have brought them to their place. Meanwhile, our women and children will live in fortified cities for protection from the inhabitants of the land on the eastern side, right? We will not return to our homes until each of the Israelites has received their inheritance. Dot, dot, dot. They are not chickening out. They just like the looks of this eastern land. How about that? They like the looks of the land for their women and children, their villages. Verse 19. We will not receive any inheritance with them on the other side of the Jordan because our inheritance has come to us on the east side of the Jordan River. Okay, so when they cross up, when the tribes cross over and the land is allocated, the other tribes are going to be given land on the western side of the Jordan. But these two tribes are going to be on the eastern side of the Jordan River. That's really all that's happening. And and the two eastern tribes are saying, We're gonna fight, we're gonna we're in this, we're with you, we're one, we're all together. But yeah, we're we would like this land on the eastern side. And Moses said to him, Okay, if you will do this, if you will arm yourselves before Yahweh for battle, and if all of you who are armed cross over the Jordan before Yahweh until he has driven his enemies out before him, then when the land is subdued before Yahweh, you may return and be free from your obligation to Yahweh and to Israel, and this land will be your possession before Yahweh. So basically, in a lot of words, Moses says, okay. All righty. All righty. <laughs> It'll work. Because all Moses was just afraid of that they were just going to chicken out again and then lead the other tribes in chickening out as they had chickened out at Kadesh Barnea 40 years before. Verse 23. But if you fail to do this, you will be sinning against Yahweh and you may be sure that your sin will find you out. That's an interesting phrasing, isn't it? If you fail to do this, you will be sinning against Yahweh and you may be sure that your sin will find you out. It doesn't say to them, if you fail to do this, you're going to be sinning against Yahweh and he's going to smite you with lightning bolts from up on top of Mount Hur or whatever. No, your sin will find you out. That is this, that's one of many clues to the fact that God's world is built upon a fabric of moral causality. Sin carries its consequences. And as Terence Fredheim mentioned him earlier, one of my favorites, um, says it's not it's not like silk nice and neat and tightly woven. It's like burlap. It's rough, hard to see sometimes, but it's there. This this fabric of, of, a, of a moral causality. Sin carries its own consequences. Sin will find you out. Which makes all kinds of sense because what is sin? Sin is, sin is, is if we think of, sin is comprised of, 
all the things we do, large, small, tiny, medium, which do not reflect the way that God made us, the life that God hopes for us, the relationships that God desires us to have. And they are hence all the things that separate us from God. Some of which we, some of the sins we see, um, probably easier to see them in others than to see them in ourselves. Sometimes we do see them in ourselves. But they all carry consequences. They, um, I was a long time ago a pilot, and you had to learn as a pilot that compasses don't take you to true north. There's a magnetic north and there's a true north, and you learn about these things because if you follow, if you follow in the wrong direction, you're not going to end up where you want to be. Sin has its consequences. Um, I think people sometimes turn sin into this special idea, and they try to, or they try to make it into what they try to make it into a list of things that they could all write down on paper, right? They could write them all down on a piece of paper. Rather than stepping back and seeing it as this catch-all word for the many ways that we don't live as God created us to live. Some of which we can name, some of which we can't. Many of which we're blind to but that doesn't mean they're not there. They are all the ways in which we, we wreck relationships rather than build relationships. They're all the ways in which we don't love God, in which we don't love others. And some of them are bigger and some of them are smaller. The smaller ones aren't necessarily less harmful. They're just harder to see. So, I just love that phrase. Gosh, there's a sermon in there, I'm telling you. I'll have to mark that. But if you fail to do this, you will be sitting against Yahweh and you may be sure that your sin will find you out. And notice that the sin is singular. Your sin, it's, it's like this beast, Genesis 4. It's like Jesus coming down the Jordan River when John looks at him and says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin, singular, of the world. It, it's... It's not merely the compilation of a, of, of a bunch of sins, or just be plural. Your sin will find you out. Build cities for your women and children and pens for your flock. But do what you have promised. Oh, that is the downfall of the Israelites. They make, they're good at making commitments. They're not very good at following through on them. Nonetheless, the Gadites and the Reubenites said to Moses, We, your servants, will do as our Lord commands. Our children and wives, our flocks and herds, will remain here in the cities of Gilead. But your servants, every man who is armed for battle, will cross over to fight before Yahweh. That means to be in the fight right there before the because commanders in battle usually hang back, right? Fight before Yahweh, just as our Lord says. Then Moses gave orders about them to Eleazar the priest and Joshua son of Nun 
and to the family heads of the Israelite tribes. And he said to them, Well, you know, if the Gadites and Reubenites, every man armed for battle, cross over the Jordan with you before Yahweh, then when the land is subdued before you, you must give them the land of Gilead as their possession. But if they do not cross over with you, they must accept their possession with you in Canaan. Okay, so, verse 31. The Gadites and Reubenites answered, Your servants will do what Yahweh has said. We will cross over before Yahweh into Canaan armed, but the property we inherit will be on this side, the eastern side of the Jordan River. Um, then Moses gave to the Gadites, the Reubenites, and the half-tribe of Manasseh, son of Joseph, the kingdom of Sihon, king of the Amorites, and the kingdom of Og, king of Basham. This, these are lands that the Israelites have, have conquered. The whole land with its cities and its territory around them. And the Gadites built up Debon, Ataroth, Aroror, Atroth, Shofan, Jazar, Jogbaha, Beth Nimrah, and Beth Haran as fortified cities and built pens for their flocks. They settled in, in other words. And the Reubenites rebuilt Heshbon, Eliah, and Kiriathaim. Just fly right off the lips, don't they, Patty? <laughs> As well as Nebo and Baal-Meon. Now, that's a dangerous name. Notice it says these names were changed. Yeah, because Baal is the name of one of the most yes. important paganite gods. So no, no right Israelite is going to live in a town by that name. So the names were changed. And Sibma. They gave name to the, names to the cities they rebuilt. There's the, the descendants of Makir. Son of Manasseh went to Gilead, captured it, and drove out the Amorites who were there. So Moses gave Gilead to the Machirites, the descendants of Manasseh, and they settled there. Jair, a descendant of Manasseh, captured their settlements and called them Havoth Jair. And Nobab captured Kenath and its surrounding settlements and called it Nobah after himself. That was a shy guy. So, okay, so what are you getting here? Why are we getting this stuff? We're getting this stuff because this is the story of the settlement of the promised land, a land that God had promised to Abraham hundreds of years before. He said, I will give you a land, Abraham. I will give you descendants more numerous than the stars and all the families of the earth will be blessed through you he has now a very large family right how many people flee egypt according to the to the scripture two million six hundred thousand men which probably translates to two million people they've had their ups and downs they start in the land of Canaan, they go to Egypt, they flee Egypt, now they're ready to come back into Canaan, back into the promised land. So this is this is about the full fulfillment of that promise. And there are tribes, though, that are going to settle on the eastern side of the Jordan River. And 
I think what I need to do next week, I should have done it today, but I, I didn't think I would necessarily get this far because I had to talk about war a lot. So, so I'll bring a, a map of these 12 tribes settling and you will see the settlement of tribes on the eastern side of the Jordan, Richard, Jordan River, which is what is recounted for us here. Because um, it's important in the telling of the Israelite story not only to trace the people and the tribes, but the land. Okay, this is the promised land. This is the land given to them by God. You still that you still hear that on the lips of Israeli politicians today. I'm not sure what how closely tied it is to, you know, these scriptures from these writings from three thousand five hundred years ago, but the scriptures take a lot of time with carefully laying out the ancestry of people and the allotment of these lands. And when when we come back next week, I will I'll have a, a good map that we can that we can see all this on. Okay. So I think, given the time, we're just going to go ahead and halt there rather than starting another chapter because when the next chapter starts it's going to get very um, repetitious for a bit because it's going to trace trace their journeys so we will we will get through chapter 33 pretty quickly and there we go next week and then we'll be on there's 36 chapters in numbers so We're second corinthians close. is coming it's coming it's coming <laughs> getting back to talking about jesus all right Alrighty. So, so we actually have been able to talk about Jesus in context of numbers, yes. haven't we? Because he is he is the faithful Jew who is able to be the promise keeper. These people, they make all we just saw them, they made a promise. They these people are not promise keepers. They're really good at making promises. They're not so good at keeping them. And so. I know you're always trying to help us connect the dots. Connecting dots, baby. Connecting dots. That's what we do. Yeah. yeah. Okay. All righty. All righty. So, thank you, guys. Those Thanks of you for who being here, here today. Thanks for being here on this beautiful day today. And we hope we'll see many of you tomorrow, either online or in class, for the big Tuesday class. That Tuesday class is so much fun. If you've never come in person, we have about 75 people there at least every week. Some weeks we're up to 85. It's crazy. And, and they um, are willing to get to get down into yes, it, aren't they? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So if you so can ever it make it, um, even if you can't make it all the time, you could just come in person once in a while. And you can bring lunch. Yes, you can. I'm always eating my Belvita crackers. I have to watch everybody eat, you know. <laughs> I know. I'm sorry. <laughs> anyway, um, also some big events are coming up too. Uh, second Act. And uh, just keep reading your little newsletters. Uh, this weekend is uh, The Revel which is the Dueling Pianos, and there is still openings for folks who want to do that. And next Thursday, week from week Thursday. Thursday, which is March 7th, our very own Mona, who's always with us on Mondays and in person on Tuesdays, will be leading um, the presentation of the BIG, Before I Go, which will be um, a workshop, and there'll be continuing workshops in how you can write your own story. 
your own story. And if you choose that you don't want to write about yourself, but another loved one or a friend or your, you know, I have someone who's come to me whose dad passed away in the last few years at 100 years old and was a World War II veteran. And she, he stormed the beaches of Normandy. Uh, it's an incredible, and she wants to make sure that she has all the, the helps to help her write his story and keep that memory alive. I wish alive. we'd help my mom write one. Yeah, we do. We wish so much. And for my mom, too, you know? Yeah. I can remember the days so when much, she so would much, try to tell so me stuff. So much stuff is just lost. Yes. And like when you're when young, your you don't dies. really, you're not paying attention as carefully. So if you can write it down while you still have it in your mind, and I know Mona is going to be fabulous with that. We'll have lots of helps for you then. And that's called the B-I-G. So anyway, join me in prayer as we close out. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this gorgeous day today. Thank you, God, for keeping us together, this group, through all kinds of weather, all kinds of ups and downs, and we are uh, a, a good little force here. We thank you for this opportunity to have a way to come and discuss your word, your scripture, and to have Scott's um, wow wide range of bible knowledge help us to get so much more out of it than if we were reading it alone lord please watch over us in the coming days keep us healthy and safe lord also we wish the same for our families and our friends and we pray god that you would just hold us close and that we would feel your presence lord every day it's in Jesus' name that we pray amen 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 okay adios Bye, everybody bye-bye